Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and president of the City Club's Board of Directors. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, one of my personal heroes, World War II veteran, pioneering entrepreneur, award-winning architect, and civic leader, Robert Madison. For many of us in this room, Mr. Madison requires no introduction. For others, we may not know the man, but we certainly know the structures he helped design. The RTA's waterfront line, First Energy Stadium, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, the Lewis Stokes Wing of the Cleveland Public Library, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where he worked with legendary architect I.M. Pei, just to name a few. Mr. Madison, the great-grandson of slaves, became the first licensed African-American architect in Ohio in 1950. Four years later, he opened Robert P. Madison International, the first African-American-owned architecture firm in Ohio, and just the 10th in the country, which still operates today. Throughout his career, Mr. Madison's countless architectural commissions and collaborations literally shaped the landscape of Cleveland and the course of architecture around the world. And he did this while overcoming racial discrimination at virtually every turn in both his personal and professional life. Today, as Mr. Madison approaches his 96th birthday, yes, that's, that's worthy of applause. <laughs> he celebrates that birthday with the publication of his memoir, Designing Victory, which provides a compelling blueprint of his remarkable career, abundant personal life, and tireless community contribution. And today, he's here to share this story. Joining Mr. Madison on the stage is retired IdeaStream host, Dee Perry. A Cleveland native, Ms. Perry has spent 40 years on the airwaves and is best known for the 20 years he spent hosting the arts and culture interview show, The Sound of Applause, on 90.3 WCPN. She is the recipient. She is the recipient of countless awards and accolades, including the Cleveland Arts Prize and the Cleveland Foundation Women of Note Legacy Award. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Mr. Robert Madison and Miss Dee Perry. Thank you all so much. It's a great uh, privilege for me to be here, Robert. Um, we've talked on a number of occasions, and the occasion that brings us here today is is your memoir, Designing Victory, um, which you wrote with Carla Wolf. 
At, at this point in time, 95 and a half, you said, I have to tell my story, why? Thank you. And first of all, I want to thank everybody who's here. I see so many people I have known for a long time. I'm surprised, and I'm, I'm surprised, I'm very shocked, and I'm very pleased you're here. Thank you. <laughs> now, back to your question. Uh, a long time ago, I used to go on vacation with my family. I would take a drawing board, because architects always take drawing boards. And I had a pad, and I decided I'd write some stuff about what happened to me when I visited my great-grandmother, who was born in slavery. And I wanted that message to be left to my children. And five years later, I wrote another piece about it. And several years later, so about three years ago, I retired from practicing architecture. I can no longer do computing architecture as they do now. I, they don't know what a slide rule is, T-square, but that's all right. <laughs> so I decided that maybe I'd start writing more about this book. And I met my friend Carlo Wolf, and we started writing. And I'm really impressed with how much my memory still is and how much I can think about things. And as I began to think about life and what happened years ago, I said, you know, this is really kind of interesting. And I decided, gee whiz, let's make something out of this. And that's when I got my friend Carlo Wolf and his group to come and help me write this book. And so I'm, I'm really pleased that it's there, and I hope that people can read it, and I hope they can benefit from it from the point of view of uh, being able to take on challenges and meet them head on and do what you can to win. And that's what we did. And you met a lot of challenges head on in your path to becoming an architect. But I, I want to take you back to the beginning for a little bit. Um, you've talked about how your mother set you on a certain path when she told you as a little boy that you were going to become an architect. So what I want to have you talk about is why you stayed on that path. What about the study and the work of architecture has led you to embrace it for the better part of a century? Well, I, first of all, my father was a civil engineer, and uh, he was, didn't have any work to do because they wouldn't hire kind of people. That was what it was back in those days. And my mother said, well, you know, we're going to build buildings. We can't build roads. We'll build buildings. And so she said, I want you to be an architect. I didn't know how to spell architecture at that time, but I said, yes, mother. And uh, as I went through the years, I began to draw a bit more and to begin to understand what's happening with, with, with visioning and trying to create something. And I said, this is for me. And I started, that's all I've ever done, is study architecture from the third grade on up to graduate school. Mm -hmm. That's why I became an architect. And one of the places where you got a good grounding was in high school at East Tech. What opportunities did that school offer you from 1937 to 1940? Well, East Tech was a great school. It really was a tremendous school. When I went to East Technical High School in 1940, uh, we studied Latin, we studied Greek, we studied architecture, civil engineering, et cetera, because I was in Washington, D.C., and they didn't have schools for African-Americans to study professions like that. So my parents came back to Cleveland so I could attend East Tech. And no question, that was one of the remarkable schools of this country. It was one of the best. And we studied everything. And I, that's when I studied architecture and became very much involved in really trying to do it in that mm -hmm. field. Mm -hmm. 
That's all. <laughs> now, out of tech, you went to the School of Architecture at Howard uh, University in DC, and you joined the ROTC. As a result, you were called to active duty when the US entered the war in 1941, World War II. How did being in the service affect your view of the world, including um, US policies at that time? That's a good question. I thank you very much for that question because it really sets the stage for, I think, all that I've done. Hard to believe, but a war was what I believe liberated African Americans. In that, when Franklin D. Roosevelt says, we gotta raise an army, people said, well, she was, what are you gonna do with the colored boys? And there were those who said, let them go to the kitchen, dig graves, build roads, and the NAACP and the Urban League said, no, let them fight and let them die. And so we said, yeah, we're gonna go out here and fight over there and we will die. But when we come back, we'll be able to say we have done our job and we will then demand more things. You know, Eddie Brooke, who was the first senator from uh, Massachusetts, he was in the Buffalo Soldiers. Uh, Power J. Mitchell was a, was, a, was a member of the Buffalo Soldiers. And I can name a number because that war Believe it or not, it's hard to say, but it was true. As a soldier, we were able to say some of us died, some of us came back, but we fought for America and we want to do what we can do here in America. Thank you. That's <laughs> and you came back, but you were seriously wounded in the war and came back with several medals as a result. Did, did you find that experience helpful or persuasive when it came to opening doors after you got back in the States? Well, I'm not sure. I guess I was almost killed several times. That was what the war is all about. I remember July, January the, uh, 26th, when I was going up in the Circular Valley, if you know Italy, I was part of the Italian campaign. Uh, Italy was where we were stationed, where we were battling. We went into the line north of Pisa, if you know Pisa. And we went up the Sigurian coast to a place called Biarratio, and then into the Circular Valley. And uh, that, it happened, just briefly about the guy, I like to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, my Jeep, I was an officer, and my driver of my Jeep, he was a, He's celebrating Christmas, and he didn't want to. He, he was in a position to drive the next day, so <laughs> I'll drive the, the car, the, the Viet Jeep. And so I was driving up to a place called Summer Colonia. You may know that it's up in the hills just north of Florence in Italy. And on this mountain road, I was going up, and the Germans saw me. They fired, hit me, threw me from the Jeep. It happens that if I had been sitting in the Jeep, the shell came in from that side, I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. So he was not here, therefore I live. But I was thrown across the road, got up and I could hardly walk because my foot was almost severed and wounds were in my abdomen. But it was an outpost about 100 yards up, saw me, picked me up and carried me back and I was fixed up. If they had missed and I kept on going, the Germans were waiting and most of the people in the 92nd Division were wiped out. Mm -hmm. 
So I did, they, they missed me. <laughs> if they, if they, if they, if that was good, and my soldier, my my driver was not in the cheap, that was good, and the outpost saw me, that was good. So right. I said, I'm I'm glad to be here. <laughs> We're glad you're here too. <laughs> but when you came back to Cleveland, um, you saw that some things had not changed as, as you went about trying to get into the School of Architecture at Case Western Reserve University. And in that instance, your war experience, I think um, you, you went into battle in another way. Yeah, well, uh, at that time, I suppose, uh, we still had Jim Crow country. We still lived in a place where black people, Af African-Americans, colored, whatever you want to call it at that time, were not welcome. And uh, Western Reserve University was another one of those places who thought maybe some people went there, but not many. The dean of the School of Architecture had, an, I had said, I called him and said, I'd like to come up and study architecture. He said, fine, come on up. But when I got up there and walked in the door, he looked at me and said, no, 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 you can't come in. We have never had any color people before, and I don't doubt we ever will. I don't like people to say that to me, so I got angry. <laughs> And I went home and I put on my uniform with my battle ribbons, my purple heart, and I went back to see the dean of admissions. And I said, listen, first thing I said was, my blood is on the soil of Italy fighting to make this country. I don't know why you can't let me into school. From that point, that's what went on. From, I was able to be admitted to the school. I, I took take, take examinations and all that, but that was why I was admitted to school. Yeah. And Still, throughout your school career at CWRU, obstacles were put in your way designed to keep you from finishing what you set out to do. I, I wondered, as, as I read through the book, what you called on to, to get through those, those experiences, what kept you going? I, I I don't know, but I think that I was determined and I wanted to show them that uh, this wasn't right. And, uh, and other people were doing the same thing, any book I said before. But we were determined to, uh, to stay and I had some difficult times. They gave me courses I was supposed to flunk. I didn't flunk. And then I was supposed to had a party at the Lakeshore Country Club where everybody went, so I came late. And they said, no, we don't, you gotta eat in the kitchen or we can't serve you here because we don't serve color people here. So I uh, said, he was, I don't understand that. And then Phil Hart, a friend of mine, came from the back room and said, if Bob doesn't eat here, I don't eat here. And if I don't eat here, nobody eats here. They had 300 meals in the refrigerator. <laughs> so they let me eat here. It was an economic decision. <laughs> But, 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 but that was the sort of thing that uh, I, we were, I said, I'm not alone. A lot, of, a lot of my peers did the same kind of thing, fighting for that. Mm. On the other hand, um, it, it wasn't all darkness and doom. During, during your CWRU years, I was reading that uh, you had the support of a young lady uh, whose name would later be written large in history. Um, Coretta Scott was her name then. What did she add to your life? 
<laughs> well, I, I was, she, was a, she was a student at Antioch College, and she, Antioch College has a work-study program where they would come to places, came to Friendly Inn, a bunch of guys who were after the war, we said, let's go to Friendly Inn and see what we can find. And I saw this young lady over there, boy, I like her very much. <laughs> and we started talking, we got together, and it happened to be a lady named Coretta Scott, she was from Marion, Alabama, and we were very good friends. And we all, we were big things to be married, but uh, she was gonna be an opera singer. I love opera. But we said, look, she's gonna be an opera singer. I'm gonna be an architect. This is, these are professions that are not welcomed for black people to have. So we walked, we talked for a long time, and we cried for a long time. We decided we would not get married. So that's how I did, and she finally married Martin Luther King, who, Bravo for her. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 you know, we, we had a couple of times to get together, but that was it. Yeah. But you did all right for yourself in, in the uh, marriage department, I would say. Um, your, your lovely wife, Leatrice, um, you met before. You met Coretta Scott, and um, I think at some point she got engaged to someone else. Well, you're right. You read the book, didn't but what I was leading to was, what about her and about that relationship um, made it the one that endured and, and really was also a bedrock for, for your career as well? There's no question about that. Anyway, now I met Leatrice uh, before I went to war, and I liked her then. But uh, I came back from the war, I went to see her, and she told me she was engaged to somebody else. That's okay. I was very happy about that, but that was it. So I got, you know, Coretta and I had a little thing that didn't work out. <laughs> so then I went back to Leatrice and I uh, asked her about it again. She'd just broken off her marriage then, engagement then. And we got married, and uh, she was about 62 years ago. And so she was, she was good. She, no, she had studied at uh, Modern Teachers College, and she got on a train and went to Chicago to become a master's degree by herself at the University of Chicago. She was an educator, and we were married, and she really was almost a, she worked teaching school while I was trying to get practice, because I, I would, didn't make any money the first couple of years. If it hadn't been for Lyotis, I wouldn't be here today, because mm -hmm. she, was a, she was a bank account. <laughs> <laughs> but she was also, um, an engine that pushed you. Oh, there, there's a part in the book where you talk about um, sometimes she was pushing and you were pulling and sometimes it was the other way around. Well, I think the most important thing was after we got married, uh, uh, I had a difficult job time getting a job. I, I went to Robert Little's office. Some of the architects here know Robert Little. And uh, other architects in this town said, we don't hire color people, it's okay. But I went to Bob Little, I said, look, I'll work for you for free. Two weeks, and then you can decide. Well, he hired me. Well, I was, when, when I finished reserve, they had not given me the courses I was supposed to take. They were to get rid of me, so they got rid of me. I didn't have any courses in many subjects, so I decided, Lipta said, look, we're gonna study. We studied every day after dinner for a year, I did, to take the state board examination. And it happens that I went down to Columbus took the state five-day examination, and I passed, which was not done by many people, then or now. 
<laughs> and I became an architect. That, but Lutris was really a, and then after that, we, she said, let's go, let's go, you need to get a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. I said, really? And it happens that she said, let's go to Harvard. Harvard, me? It happens that GI Bill of Rights would provide this funds for me to study at Harvard. So I went to Harvard University, Walter Gropius. And uh, Literus was working in the library there, and she saw the uh, advertisement for a Fulbright Fellowship. So I applied for that. She said, go for that. So we decided to go. I want, I want a scholarship to go to study at L'École de Bazaar in Paris, France. For a year, we had, that year was a weird, weird year because I graduated from Harvard, got a job teaching at Howard, at Howard University. Then I got the Fulbright Fellowship, and the baby was born. What? Is he? And my mother-in-law said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I asked Lutra, she said, we're going. Mother-in-law said, you're crazy. <laughs> so we went to Paris for a year. And that was when Lutra was really a, she was, she was the one who pushed all that. Yeah. I, love, I have great love. She died six years ago, but she was with me. Yeah. And another way that she was with you was when she said, uh, Robert, it's, it's, Time to start your own firm. Yep. So we, we decided, I was teaching at Howard University, and I said, well, nobody was practicing. I, everybody said, we don't have good people. So I said, I've got to start something. So I uh, opened my practice in Cleveland, and I said, we do hire colored people. And we do hire, <laughs> we do hire colored people, yellow people, red people, brown people, black people. So uh, pretty soon uh, it was fulfilled, and I got had perhaps the first truly integrated office of architects, perhaps still. Because my, one, it, near the end, my vice president was uh, uh, Jim, Jim Lim, who was Chinese, and Chinya uh, Padmasivan, uh, who was Indian. He's, uh, he was brown. He's me, and Chester Gray was black. What we, a wonderful, wonderful time. But that was, that was what I felt strongly about. That's what America should be about. That's what I wanted to do. And we were able to get work in Cleveland. Mm. But you make it sound so easy. I'm, I'm wondering what kinds of challenges you faced in, in building that client base right from the beginning. Well, you know, <laughs> you have to know people to know people. And I didn't have a lot of, didn't know a lot of people in the industry. And I didn't belong to the union club or other clubs like that. So. Uh, it happens that some doctors that I knew, African-American doctors, decided they needed a place because they could not find offices to work because nobody would let them rent in their places. They didn't have privileges in the hospital, so they asked me if I'd design a building for them. I did, first building. And they won a design award from AIA in 1957. So that was what I did to become there. But, you know, Life is what it is. But one thing which really I feel strongly about, I talk about really, in 1957, Cleveland was going through what was called a third downtown reawakening. People over there at the, at the planning table know all about it. <laughs> there they are. That's Hunter Morris. <laughs> anyway, third, Cleveland's third downtown reawakening. And they asked me to write a report. I am paid was the architect for the entire plan. You know what? It's too bad that that third downtown reawakening was not fulfilled because 
among the place among the things that were required was a subway system, and it had been approved, but the wrangling that went back and forth for so many years it was not approved. And I see even today that in terms of planning, I'm a planner also, that uh, the elimination of that subway system was, was not good for Cleveland. We also had the Shoreway, which we objected to very strongly. Shoreway prevented people from going freely to the lake. The subway system created all the downtown, well, I don't want, you didn't ask me about that. But <laughs> but it's interesting. I get started talking about architecture and I, I would stop, but uh, those are things that we could miss, and, and the planners over there know about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> um, in, in talking about things that, that you made come into being in, in this region, I'm, I'm wondering about um, something that, that makes you especially proud. Well, I, uh, I think that the buildings I was selected to do, uh, I like this science building at Cleveland State University very much. That was okay. special. Because you had to shoehorn it between two buildings. And that's where you had all the space out front because there was a building there before we could build the science building. So we built my building, then tore it down. I like that building very much. <laughs> Uh, then uh, we, we, were, we were associate architects on the uh, Frank A. Lasher State Office building with Taguchi, Ch Chinese, and uh, uh, Taguchi is Japanese, and, and uh, Ireland from, from Columbus, Ohio. That was the state office building. It has a number of different sites. You see, it, it had, doesn't have a, a lower level because it's built over the railroad tracks. And it was the first platform built over the railroad, but there's no basement because the tracks still go through there. And uh, it has uh, different shapes, and I'd given it a shape. It was a cigarette type, but uh, the plain dealer, one of the newspapers wrote about Bob Madison calls it this, and because it does, if you see the state office, but you'll see it, it follows pretty much the path of the profile of the streets. But it was, I, I liked the building very much because it, it really was a, a, a building that Floats on, you don't know that, but there's nothing below it. It's built over the railroad tracks. Uh, then I think that working with I.M. Pei, see, when I went to China with I.M. Pei, this was in 1980, 1974, when the, after Nixon and, uh, and Kissinger had gone to uh, China, got that all, so that uh, the Chinese architects invited the American architects to come to visit them. And there were 15 of us. I am paid letter. I was one of those selected, which I'm very grateful for. I think I am paid was kind of concerned about my writing a critique about him and my third down reawakening. But I went to China, but I came back, and uh, I was very happy to do that sort of thing. So I, I'm wondering, as, as you're describing buildings that you've envisioned and, and created, if in your working you worked with an architect's statement, like a, an, an artist's vision, this is who I am and why I do what I do, or, or if each project was its own individual thing. It is. Uh, you know, 
you get a piece of ground. It's a flat piece of ground. You got four lines that you're flat. And you have a program, oh, architects know this, but, but, but the idea is to create a building that does a number of things. One, number one, it's a, it, it is to solve the problem for which it was just intended. A medical building, this college building, a house, or something like that. And then the environment is what I feel strongly about. What's next door, what's around the street, and how does it improve and uplift the environment in which we live in. And that's what uh, I believe that it, these architects could have criticized me, but sorry. But, 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 but the ability to, to think strongly about what it is we're trying to do and how it affects people who see it, people who live with it, people who live in it, and to have it come out for a long time to be. So it becomes a part of that community and enhances it, makes it better. That's what I'm trying to do. Architecture, yeah. Well done. Agree with me. <laughs> it's okay. I think it's time to uh, invite questions, but first Robin's going to come back and lead us to it. To Today we're listening to a forum with Robert Madison. He's in conversation with former Idealstream host, Dee Perry. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and City Club intern Armilio Arsania. May we have the first question, please? Mr. Madison, I'm so glad you're here. Um, in February, I interviewed you on my radio show, um, It's About Justice, which airs every Saturday at 1 o'clock on WRUW 91.1. Um, <laughs> and and uh, we talked about something that I think is very important, that you have uh, scholarship for students who want to become architects, for African-American students who want to become architects. So could you just, I don't know if the deadline has passed, but could you just, I think it's important for people to know that you've, that you've done that. Thank you, thank you very much, that's good. I'm glad you asked that question. When I celebrated my 50th anniversary of practice, and it, it was 2004, and we were trying to figure out what to do about it, so have a good time, but my wife, who was very important, said, look, let's do more than that. Let us try to get a place and a time and opportunity for others to start. And so we established what was called the Robert P. Madison Scholarship in Architecture for African-American students. Because there were so few, and there still are, and I'm sure, I think it's even diminishing. It troubles me that, that, that uh, yeah, athletes get a lot of accolades, and they're wonderful. I like LeBron and all that. <laughs> but you know, there are other things that people can do. And uh, it, 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 I felt so strongly that architecture is one of them. It's wonderful. It takes a little time to get ready. And so we said, let us have the uh, scholarship. And therefore, uh, it's in the Cleveland Foundation where uh, you can send any amount of money you want. And each year, uh, students uh, will apply for it, and it is awarded. And I'm very delighted 
to feel that there will be others, at least who have the opportunity to study architecture, whether they do or not, it's there. So thank you so much for, for asking. And we should mention that the book, Designing Victory, is, is part of that well, effort well, as well. Here's this book. OK, but I've got to tell you about this book. You see, Carlo Wolf. Stand up, Carlo. <laughs> I've known Carlo from the time he wrote an article piece about me for Western Reserve University. Case Western Reserve University. It was Western Reserve when I was school. And I thank you, Carlo. And Carlo uh, had a group called uh, Act Three. And they are here, and they were participants in the, some of the, the artwork here, and they're doing it together. And, and, and I think they really were essential in trying for me, because I didn't talk about publishing a building. I didn't know anything about publishing. We to design buildings, but not publish buildings. We published books. So they did this, and I hope that uh, uh, young people would read it, and, and again, not for me, but, but for the understanding of the, the struggle that one endures, and when one wins, it's great. You know, my favorite expression comes from Theodore Roosevelt. He says, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered with failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither suffer much nor endure much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Um, good afternoon. Uh, such an honor to hear you speak, Mr. Madison. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about as demographics shift in the city of Cleveland and population shift, how do we continue to repopulate our city but build inclusive communities and what can architecture do to help that? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. One thing they can do is have more children. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I do have here some statistics, whether you know it or not, but uh, in 1920, Cleveland was the fifth largest city in the country, after New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Cleveland. The, right now, the population of Cleveland is close to about uh, 379,000. There has been a decline. Uh, I can't answer that question. I uh, think that the tremendous assets that Cleveland has, I think that in addition to the first, second, third downtown reawakening, that was called the Gateway Plan, which enclosed all those. And you cannot beat what's happening at the University Circle with the Cleveland Museum of Art, the orchestra, the university, Cleveland Clinic, wonderful architectural places. But I think that what has to happen is that the universities have got to produce more people who want to stay here. When they do that, and we can get the kind of people living in Cleveland, staying in Cleveland, because it has all the assets that it should have, we will build a better city. But I, I, do, I do worry a lot about the, the, I don't say decline of Cleveland, but 
I, uh, I get a little bit concerned about the fact that, you know, I'll tell you one thing. I uh, was very upset with Ernie Bone. Ernie Bone was the, I had some problems, I had some, I did, did a couple of jobs with Ernie Bone, but in building housing called public housing, I believe that there should be scattered housing. And I made that very clear. But of course, it wasn't observed. But when you get mass housing, public housing, and you just continue it to over and over again become the same thing, it begins to deteriorate certain parts of the city. So I think the, 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 well, the exodus from Cleveland of certain people uh, made it possible. But I think that uh, we have to continue to maintain first our university graduates remaining here and beginning to build this as a better opportunity for people. There are opportunities in Cleveland, but uh, we, we do need that, uh, that resource of people staying to do that sort of thing. That's what I, I feel strongly about. Who else was he? Good afternoon, Mr. Madison. Um, it is a pleasure to hear from you today. Thank you for your service and your example through the years. Uh, one question that I had a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, have a picture with you and the late Judge Jean Merle Capers, uh, who is an example and a pillar of the community. And so what I'd like to ask you about is uh, what was your experience um, with supporting other leaders at the time who were also going through struggle and um, trailblazing in the community? Um, and what examples, uh, what type of example can that set in uh, current days as, as leaders uh, who are still overcoming struggles of racial injustice? Thank you. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm quite happy to indicate that I was one of Carl Stokes's first supporters. As a matter of fact, I uh, was Carl Stokes's uh, urban renewal specialist. I wrote his, his, his papers for urban renewal. But in response to your question, uh, I think that um, we have to, uh, I, I don't really have an answer for that. I'm still struggling with it. But I do believe that uh, Cleveland will, will rebound and come back again. But we need to keep going. Is that it? Uh, hello, Mr. Madison. I'm so glad to be here today. And thank you for uh, coming out and speaking to us. Uh, I was just wondering if you have any uh, advice for young architecture students or young minority architecture students. Study architecture. <laughs> <laughs> But no, you know, it, it's a wonderful profession. It really is. And I think when you, when you see the piece of paper and you see lines on the paper that you have created something that's going to stand, it's, it's wonderful. I've tried to encourage young students to study architecture as, as often as I can. And I will do whatever I can. I've been to the schools. I've been to the public schools in Cleveland. I don't get the kind of reception that I would like to have from some of the teachers because I don't think some of the teachers really understand what's happening. But there's no question that young people must begin to become, because we've got to create this, maintain the, the fabric of the city. 
that my friend right here is doing it. Tell him what you're, he's building buildings. But uh, it's, it's important that we do this sort of thing, and I would encourage all along, and especially if the public schools can begin to embrace the kind of curriculum that at least begins to lead to some, some substance of what it's all about, drawing and housing and building, and become involved with people live in cities and how they live in these cities and what they can do. So I think that schools have a great deal to do with. I'm not terribly happy with uh, what's happening in Cleveland's public. I I'm a graduate of the Cleveland's public schools, East Tech. So I think the Cleveland public schools have an awful lot to do, but I would encourage you to do that. Good afternoon, Dr. Madison. Uh, I loved East Tech. I was a college counselor there, but I'm a graduate of East High, so <laughs> blue bomber. <laughs> anyway, uh, my question is, do you believe in this day and time we still need uh, a community resource like the Future Outlook League was in your time? Um, since you graduated from East Tech, I'm sure you knew uh, Woolworths at the Five and Dime on 55th. The Future Outlook League took my mother from being a waitress there to a graduate of Kent State at number 15 in her class. Makes me. So I know that the impact of professionals like you, like the attorneys who ate at the dime store, and other community participants who were like my mother at one time could do something because you're right. The schools now are failing our children and we have discussed this, but I feel there is hope like my friend Merle to do something and I would like to hear what you think about that. Well, I, I certainly agree with you. I think that the schools are the, that's, that's where the, that's the beginning where, where we get our new people who are going to populate the society of ours. But I do think that uh, we need more people going into teaching. See, my wife was a school teacher, but back in those days they had what was called uh, teachers' colleges in which they devoted Totally. I will never forget the time that my wife was telling me about having to go to get the examination to become appointed to a teacher. And they were observing how her fingernails were polished, how her attire was, so that the teacher was really an example of what we all ought to become. And I believe even today that, that teachers uh, they're the mainstream. They're the educators for who we are to become. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at the age now where I don't give much thought to what's going to happen 20 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> but for the immediate future, there's no question. We have to do that. I agree with you totally. 
Hello, Bob Madison, Chris Ronane. Hey, Chris, how are you? you? <laughs> Good. Hey, Hunter so, next to you? Uh, yeah, Hunter and Norm Cromwell. Norm got Cromwell. years of public service here, Bob Brown. And also uh, your fellow uh, Landmark Commission uh, member, Paul Volpe and Tony oh, Coyne yeah. is on the. So we got 100 years of public service here, but uh, thank you <laughs> for all you've done. Uh, I just wanted to give one quick story and then ask you a question to, that you once offered something up to me. First of all, uh, my mother, just by chance, our family has a burial plot next to yours at Lakeview Cemetery. We take that very seriously. No. But I just, I just wanted to, I just wanted to say something about Bob Madison. I'm not ready. I'm not First of all, yeah. we we've been to what the most unique Lakeview Cemetery party I've ever seen called a plot party, and it's a party that in life you celebrate people you might be next to in the afterlife. It's fun. But my mother told me a story I just wanted to convey because my mom's been going through some health issues. One, she said. There's a gentleman, when my mom goes to visit my dad, there's a gentleman who sits in his car and the opera plays, and he just listens to the opera, and he sits over his wife's grave, and that's Bob Madison. So I just wanted to convey that from my mom to you. So, and I have a quick question. When I was up at your apartment once, you told me a story, and I just wondered uh, if A, I got it right, or B, you could extrapolate on it. It was about actually breaking into the industry uh, and that it took a blind competition uh, in a design competition that you won to break into the uh, industry here in Cleveland. Could you extrapolate a little bit on that story? Thank you. <laughs> Good to talk to you, too. <laughs> but while we're up above. You know? Now, uh, what happens in 19, I, 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 started, I opened my practice in 1954, and whoever heard of a black architect was what everybody said. So I had to make myself known, so they had a, an architectural competition. This was to design a small house for the state of Ohio by the uh, Builders Association of, uh, of Ohio. And I entered the competition. Not only I entered once, I entered two, pla two panels. And uh, you, you know, there's no there's no name visible, so I entered these two panels in the Ohio Home Competition. I had been in practice, I think it was three years at that time. And uh, when the announcement was made, I received third prize and an honor mission. And then they heard of a black architect. <laughs> <laughs> But that was that was that was the competition. I thank you for remembering that. I, I don't forget it. But uh, no, that was that was a moment which was really kind of rewarding. We beat them. We beat them. Yeah. Bob, tell me what you felt when you went to the African continent after having built those two embassy buildings for the United States on the African continent, what you felt standing there and knowing the, the route that you had come and the route that uh, your ancestors had come. Thank you, Leon. You know, Leon Bibb is a famous uh, commentator. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, Leon has read my book. <laughs> <laughs> But in effect, what he's saying is that this is true, that uh, I was selected to do the American Embassy in Dakar, Senegal. You know, that time, 
African countries who were just getting their release from colonialism, and they wanted to establish diplomatic relations uh, with the different countries in America. Uh, my firm was selected to design the American Embassy in Dakar, Senegal. I guess a couple of reasons. I spoke French because it's a French-speaking country. I studied in Paris for a year, so I knew French. And then the metric system, which was really tortuous. <laughs> but I went to Dakar, and a couple of things. First of all, this is the first time in my life I'd ever been a part of the majority population. Nobody looked at me when I walked down the street. <laughs> Nobody looked at me. Who was he? And I had great meetings with, with the members of the, of the Senegalese government there, Dakar particularly. But on one, what Leon is referring to is on one particular Sunday, that first Sunday I was there, I went over to the Ile de it's called, which is an island off the coast of uh, Dakar, just to visit. And uh, while there, I encountered an enormous building that I looked at and I said, what is this building? And it was the encampment of slaves. And then I went into this building and I found out this was where the slaves were kept prior to being shipped to America or wherever they were shipped. There was a porthole in one part in which I could see that you go out as a gangplank to the waiting ship. Well, as Leon was commenting, I was sitting there looking at this. I really saw on the wall the shackles, the uh, iron, the, uh, the pieces of torture that were there. And I saw imprints of supposedly, I guess, scratches on the wall. These were where the slaves were kept who left their car for parts, America, et cetera. And uh, I, I cried. I, I really did. I uh, was, because my ancestors, more than likely, had come to this country from that place. And here I was, 300 years later or so, designing an embassy to house the diplomats of the country for which my people were enslaved. So Leon remembers that. I told him about that. And I, it was very, quite touching, quite moving. I sat there for about, I guess, about 30 minutes and cried. Mm. I just cried. It was, it was my, the beginning of my, 300 years later, I'm here to design this building for people, for the embassy of the country that enslaved my, my people. So mm. that was a moment of quite touching. Thanks, Leon. Bob, Mr. Madison. Hi. Over here. Hi, Hi Seth. That, that's oh, Rick. Isn't it? Rick, you're off one generation. <laughs> uh, I would love to hear you speak about one of your, I think, most wonderful buildings, the uh, Lewis Stokes uh, wing on the library. Every time I go in that building, just to the east of the main library, I am struck by the feeling that the central, I think it's an oval tower, is trying to escape from the four corners that are kind of still there to make it a sort of a regular rectangular building in some sense. But there feels like there's a, a surge of aspiration that you were trying to evoke in the way you designed that building. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Taft, right? 
What's the first name? Rick. I forgot, you know, my memory is not what it used to be, Rick. <laughs> Better than most of ours, Mr. Mattis. But uh, no, uh, we, we, were, we were with uh, uh, Malcolm Holzman. Uh, Malcolm was the uh, lead architect on that project, and uh, I was the associate architect here in Cleveland for the uh, building. The you know, that's a tremendous building. It was built, I think, Walker Weeks did Walker Weeks do that building some time ago. So there was going to be an addition next door to it, and we were involved with Malcolm to design that building. And uh, there was a great debate going on about because of the classicism of the old library, which was the Burnham plan, as you know. Daniel Burnham, the first downtown reawakening. Keep me, keep me going, OK? <laughs> that was a Daniel Burnham plan. Uh, it was the, uh, the, the library was the major, one of the major buildings on that corner. But uh, we had to, uh, to, to, to in, give, give another wing. My job primarily was the restoration of the existing library. And one of the key things there, well, you know, it was built in 1926. They didn't have air conditioning then. And so one of our jobs was to put air conditioning in that building. And we did it. And you would never know where the ducks are. Because we brought them up through the stacks. And just where the books were, they, they, they were the bits. So the job was really to try to, to, to create, or to develop the air conditioning system without any visible observation of what was going on. But, but the, the total complex was there. And Malcolm and I talked for a long time about the tower and how the curvature of the tower that faces uh, Superior Avenue, was it Superior Avenue? I think it's on Superior Avenue. Would 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 would, de would not detract from uh, the other parts of the uh, uh, Burnham plan, and what you see the, the stones are exactly from the same quarry that the original stones were from, and the the curvature there was to try to diminish the impact of what was taking place with the with the uh, main library, so that was what what took place. And if you read my book, you'll find out where I know we got to go. But, 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 but uh, uh, we had, Malcolm and I had a big debate in that it the mullions, he wanted to be yellow. And I had said, oh, no, 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 we don't have that. So we took him out. 20 years later, I went up there, I was going to the opera, and I wanted to see Malcolm, and we started talking. I said, Malcolm, you're right, it should have been yellow. <laughs> Thank you so much. Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum with legendary architect Robert Madison. He's been in conversation with former IdeaStream host, Dee Perry. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Act Three, the AIA College of Fellows, City Architecture, the Cleveland Foundation, the Construction Employers Association, Cuyahoga Community College, Richard Bogomoni, Michael and Ari Ariel Jeans, Robert P. Madison International, and UCI. We thank all of you for being here today. 
The sale of Mr. Madison's book, Designing Victory, a Memoir, is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Madison and Ms. Perry. Thank you, esteemed guests. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.